Amen. Okay, praise God. Well, we're going to be looking continuously at this series called Disciples at Work. So this is where we're, uh, where we're at. And of course, when I say work, I'm referring to more than just a nine-to-five job outside of the home, but I'm referring to any real work that all of you guys might be engaged in. So I'm talking about things like remote work from home, running a business, being a student, homeschooling children. Some of you guys are doing that. My wife does that. Doing acts of service as a retired person. So all of that is real work. And if you are doing real work, then this is what we're going to be talking about and how your faith interacts with work. And so this is what we're looking at. This is the series. And today I want to start with a question. But what if I told you it is going to rain? What do I mean by that? Like, what kind of a beginning is this? <laughs> but just go with me, okay? But I want to begin with this question. But if it's going to rain, and I said that to you today after service, what do I mean by that? <laughs> Maybe. Well, like Helen, some of you guys might jump with an answer without hesitation because it seems like a fairly straight question. Okay, I know what you're asking. But on second thought, you really can't answer that question. What do I mean by it's going to rain unless you know the broader context of my statement? Correct? So you need to know more information. I like what N.T. Wright wrote in this book, Jesus and the Victory of God. But he said you can only know the meaning and significance of a statement like it is going to rain if you know the broader narrative or the story surrounding that statement. So what does he mean by that? Well, for example, what if I said on a day that we were planning to go on a picnic? Right before going out, I said, oh, no, it's going to rain. Well, now you understand immediately that's bad news, right? You're saying something that's bad news. But let's suppose that we're facing a terrible drought like the one we have been in California for the last few years. And because of that, our food supply is being threatened. And there might not be enough crops this upcoming year. And then I said, you know what? It's going to rain. Well, now it's a completely different kind of statement, right? It's good news. Now, what if I had predicted three days ago, we were just kind of hanging out and talking, and I told you, you know what? I think it's going to rain. <laughs> but then you didn't believe me at that time. But now, three days later, we're walking somewhere, and I look up, and I say, it's going to rain. Now, that statement is vindication for me, <laughs> that I'm right, and you were wrong, right? You didn't believe me three days ago, but now I'm right. So you get N.T. Wright's point. That statement, it is going to rain, has multiple meanings, multiple different significances if you know the broader narrative or the story surrounding the statement. So this is how we understand each other. This is how we talk to one another. Well, the same is true when you wake up each day and you tell yourself, I have to work today. I have to work today. Now, on its own, that statement sounds just very straightforward. Yeah, you better go to work. Right, you're scheduled to go in today. Or yeah, you have a job, you don't want to get fired. But there's a br broader context surrounding that, right? And what you really mean when you say that to yourself every day, I have to go to work today, you can only understand that if you know the broader context. Because there is a story that surrounds that statement. And every story has a plot. Any true story has a plot. What I mean by that is there are certain things that should be a certain way but they're not. So that's a problem. And because there's a problem now, people need to look for a solution. So every story has those three elements, the way things should be, but there is a problem hindering that from happening. And because of that problem, now people are looking for a solution. 
Okay, that is a story. If you only have one of those or two of those, you don't have a story. You need to have all three to have a story. And every time we have a statement that we're telling ourselves, like, I have to go to work today, there's a story. There's a story with all those elements involved. So, for example, and by the way, this story is very powerful. This story that we're telling ourselves when we say I have to go to work is driving us to work, is shaping the way we work. So, for example, maybe your story is you'd like to have a certain level of security in your life or you want a certain lifestyle. Maybe you grew up without a lifestyle and now you want this as an adult working. So that's how things should be. But you're struggling financially right now. So that's a problem. So now when you say, I have to go to work, that's the solution to that problem. See, there's a whole story behind it. Other people, maybe your story is you have a certain vision of success in your life. That's how things should be. But your life is not there yet. When you look, you're like, gosh, I'm not there, right? I don't see my life being successful, so that's a problem. So now when you say to yourself, I have to go to work today, that's a different solution to a different problem, right? Whole different story. Maybe for others, your story is you're a student and your parents have a lot of expectations on you and they want you to do well in school. After all, they're paying a lot of money for you to be here, right? But, so that's the way things should be, but your grades have not been that good. So that's a problem. So when you tell yourself each day, oh, I gotta get to work, I gotta study, that's your solution to that problem. So very different story, right? And for others, maybe your identity is in your work. And so you wanna feel good about who you are. That's how things should be. But you haven't been feeling very good about yourself at work. Things haven't been working out very well. That's your problem. So now when you say, I have to go to work, again, that's a whole different solution to a whole different problem. So you understand. That behind that simple statement, I have to work today, there's an entire narrative that's driving you to go to work and it's shaping the way you're going to do work. It's very powerful. And this is not only true of work, but it's true of our entire lives. Our entire lives are being driven and shaped by these stories that we are telling ourselves. It's a narrative. And oftentimes these stories are subconscious, but they're running in the background all the time. I call it the operating system to our lives. You know, every time you open up your laptop, you, you pop in there, there's an OS. You don't even pay attention to it. You're just looking at the apps and the browser and whatever you're surfing, right? But behind all of that, there is this operating system quietly running everything. And it determines the way you interact with everything on your laptop. Well, that is these stories and these narratives in your life. It's running everything. Every time you get up and you say things to yourself, I mean, it's driving your life in a certain direction. When you interact with people, it's driving your interactions in a certain way. When you get to work and begin to get to your work, it's going to determine how you go about it. So they're very powerful in shaping and directing our lives. So now when we turn to Daniel chapter 2, we see a story that has this level of power to shape and direct our lives. That's what this chapter is talking about. But not only our lives, but all of humanity and the world. So this is much more powerful than just simply saying, oh, I need to get to work today. But this story that we see in Daniel chapter 2 actually shapes all of humanity and the world itself. And this story is the gospel. So the gospel is God's story that goes far beyond our lives. It encompasses the entire world. So listen to this one description of the gospel. But these authors said, The proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom is not an announcement about a new religious experience or a new teaching, new doctrine. Still less, 
is this an offer of future salvation in another spiritual world? So these authors are saying, it's none of that, right? The gospel. But this gospel is an announcement about where God is moving the history of the whole world. And I will say that again. This gospel is an announcement or message about where God is moving the history of the whole world. So what am I saying? What are they saying? The gospel is a story, right? It is an overarching story about where God is moving humanity and history itself of the entire world. So it has power to shape and direct not only our lives, but the world itself. And yet for most people, including some Christians, these stories that are running in our heads, like the the few that I mentioned, oh, I have to go to work today, and there's a whole story behind that, these stories are far more real and far more powerful than God's gospel story, right? So last week, we talked about living out the gospel at work, and I talked about some hindrances. Well, here's a major hindrance from us living out the gospel at our workplace, is we have all these other stories that are running, different operating systems. You're not on, you know, Android, but you're on, you know, what does iPhone use? I don't even know what iPhone uses. IOS, that's right. I'm so far removed from Apple. IOS, right? You're running on something completely different. And so the way your work looks, the way you interact with everything at work, it looks very different than what we see in Scripture. And so other stories, other narratives are more real and more powerful to many people than God's gospel story. And this has consequences. This has consequences. So what I want to look at today is God's story in Daniel Daniel chapter 2. And it came in the form of a dream given to King Nebuchadnezzar. And from this chapter, what I see is the significance of God's story, the revelation of God's story, and finally the applications of God's story. We're going to look at some applications. But this is a very, very powerful narrative that runs our lives and human history itself. So the significance of God's story. Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. It says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in, and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled. So we read this earlier. And so basically, these magicians, enchanters, and wise men said, Oh, king, live forever. Just tell us your dream. We'll give you the interpretation. And the king said, hold on. No, I don't trust you. Kind of strange that he didn't trust his own wise men that he had collected over time, but he didn't trust them. And he's like, no, in order for me to trust your interpretation, you need to tell me what I dreamt. I'm not going to tell you. You tell me what I dreamt, then I'll trust your interpretation. And then he said, to make it a little bit more exciting, if you don't do this for me in a short amount of time, then I will rip you limb from limb and I'm going to destroy your homes. Got that? <laughs> ah, all right. So here they are. They're just freaking out. So here's the situation. Nebuchadnezzar had a troubling dream. And this situation, by the way, was directly connected to the last verse in chapter 1 that said Daniel lasted until the reign of King Cyrus. Why was it connected to that? Well, the reason why is because King Cyrus was the king of the Medo-Persian Empire that came next. The Persians came and took over they destroyed Babylon, so they came next. And so that verse at the end of chapter 1 gave us a clue that Babylon would eventually fall. Another nation would take its place. So that was a clue. 
And so now this dream is kind of affirming that, right? It's kind of continuing. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't know any of that, right? This was going to happen long in the future after he was gone. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't know any of that. All he knew was he had a dream. And in this dream, maybe he saw himself. There was a big statue with a golden head. Maybe his face was on the golden head. Who knows, right? But he was terrified by this dream. And so here's his dream. Maybe it represented Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe he noticed that. And then this stone not cut by human hands, cleaved off of a mountainside, flew into the statue and shattered it to pieces. So now Nebuchadnezzar is really terrified. And so he called his wise men, his magicians. He needed to understand what's going on. And before they would even open his mouth to describe the dream, he said, you need to tell me the dream first. You need to tell me. So clearly, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, this was very urgent. This was incredibly significant, even though he didn't have access to its meaning. It was an emergency for Nebuchadnezzar and also for all the wise men and magicians. By the way, this included Daniel and his friends. They were included in this group of people who were going to be torn limb from limb, and their homes were going to be destroyed if they didn't tell the king the dream and the interpretation. So immediately at the beginning of this chapter, we see this urgent significance to this dream. It was incredibly significant. And it was troubling, it was significant more than because it was a nightmare. But it was significant because it was a revelation of the true story of human history. This is why it was so significant. And Nebuchadnezzar, even though he didn't fully understand it, he knew something was big, something was important. But this was God's revelation of the story of human history. This is God's story of the world as we know it. And there's a word for this kind of all-encompassing story. It's worldview. Okay, that's the word, worldview. Worldview, that's a word that was coined first by Immanuel Kant, who was a philosopher. And over time, this became very important in philosophy and theology, but worldview. And there are a lot of different ways to define this word, but it basically means a set of foundational beliefs about yourself, the world, and reality. J.P. Moreland, he used uh, used to teach at my seminary. I don't know if he still teaches there. But I remember he defined this word worldview in this way. But he said, a worldview is a habitual way of thinking and seeing the world that forms fundamental beliefs. Did you catch that? He said, a worldview is a habitual way of thinking and seeing the world that forms fundamental beliefs. And these beliefs, in turn, affect the way we notice or don't notice things in the world and things about reality. Have you ever, like, seen something? You're, like, watching a movie or, like, you're looking at a situation and you start describing it to a friend and that friend just has no clue what you're talking about. They didn't see it, but you saw it. Or vice versa. Somebody else saw something and they're describing that thing to you and you saw it too and you're like, what are you talking about? You didn't see it, but they saw Well, why is that? It's because we have different worldviews. And a worldview is this habitual way of thinking and seeing the world. You're just used to seeing everything a certain way. And so there are things that are good that you notice that other people don't notice. There are things that are bad that you notice other people don't notice and vice versa. And these beliefs, they don't come just from our minds and our thoughts. It's not because you just sat in a room and thought about things deeply. Maybe. But oftentimes, they come from your mind, but they also come from experiences you've had. They come from deeply held values. 
even feelings about some things. As we go through life, you experience something, you had a really just bad feeling about that. Other things, you've experienced things, and you just had a really good feeling as you experienced that thing. Well, all these things contribute to forming your worldview. So it's not as neat and logical as you expect it to be. It's just this kind of combination of a variety of different things working to form these fundamental beliefs. And over time, this really becomes the lens. Have you heard anyone describe worldview as a pair of glasses? I remember my uh, wife used to have a pair of glasses that were rose-colored, and every now and then I would put it on. I don't like wearing women's sunglasses, but every now and then I would just put it on. It's like, whoa, right? It's like everything's pink. Or was it orange? I don't know. Maybe it was orange. But it's kind of like that. That's the popular definition of a worldview. But it's the lens through which you see the world. It's how you make sense of the world. And like any story, a worldview answers three basic questions. It's the same questions I said earlier. Like any other story, it answers the questions, how are things supposed to be? How are things supposed to be? What is the problem getting in the way of it becoming like that? And then finally, what's the solution then? What's the solution? And so we all have a worldview that answers those questions. So worldview is a story, except it's answering these questions at the broadest level possible. Right? It's not just talking about how is today supposed to be and what's the problem for making today good, or, but, but it's something much broader than that. So for example, some people have a materialistic worldview. They have a materialistic worldview. And their worldview says this, how are things supposed to be? I'll tell you, every human being should live prosperous, healthy, and happy lives. I think some of you have this worldview. So then what's the problem getting in the way? Lack of resources, maybe injustice. Then what's the solution? Technology. Technology, right? AI. These things will increase the resources in our world. Universal health care. Maybe just laws, right? Because injustice gets in the way of this kind of prosperous, happy life. So just laws. So that's a worldview. And a lot of people, even some of you, you walk around living your life with this narrative in your head. It's constantly running like the operating system in the background. And anything you see is filtered through that. Anything you don't see is filtering out through that. It's this worldview. Others have a very moralistic worldview. How are things supposed to be? People should live moral lives. And the world will be a better place. But then what's the problem that's getting in the way? Moral failure. Lack of willpower and desire to live good lives and good, be good people. Then what's the solution? Self-effort. You got to try harder. You got to do better. Come on, come on, people. You got to do better. So some people have that worldview. Others, they have this kind of liberation worldview. How are things supposed to be? People should live free lives. We should be free to live our lives and nobody gets in the way. A lot of Americans have this worldview. What's the, oppression, uh, what's the problem then getting in the way? Oppression. People. Stopping me from being free. So then what's the solution? Liberation, right? And for some people, that even includes violence. Even if it means violence, right? We will be free. So that's some people. And then finally, there's many, right? But I'm just giving you a sample. But then finally, there's the gospel worldview. There's the gospel worldview. How are things supposed to be? People should know God and glorify God by loving him, with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving their neighbor as themselves. Yeah, that's how things should be. Loving God and loving others and glorifying him. Then what's the problem getting in the way? Our sin. 
and the sinful world system, then what's the solution? God sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live, die, and rise again in our place. That's the only solution. So do you see how fundamentally different these worldviews are? And by the way, that last one, the gospel worldview, that is the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. That's what he dreamt. That's the worldview that he saw. So you can see how different these worldviews are from one another. And depending on what worldview people have, it really does shape their lives. It really does. It profoundly directs them in different directions. It shapes their identity, how they see themselves, their goals in life. Have you ever asked yourself, have you ever taken a pause, taken a step back and said, what do I really want in life? Why did I enter this career field? I mean, it's torture as hell. Why am I doing this? I remember some of you guys, a lot of you guys are in the medical field. I remember having these talks off and on with people. Say, oh, how are things going? Oh, I don't know. I'm asking, why am I doing this? And I would always say, or I, I would try to encourage them, that's a good question. You should ask that. Earlier the better. But why are you going after certain things in life? Why are you living the way you live, your behavior, your conduct with others? How do you spend your time? Why are you spending your time in that way? How do you get involved in certain things? Why do you get involved in certain things? Why are certain causes more important to you than others? For some, it might be going to church. For others, it's joining these clubs on campus. For others, it's doing something in the community. But why? Why are these things important? Well, the answer is you have a certain worldview. It's running your life. It's directing it. And it also shapes your work. Right? It shapes your work. So going back to those examples I gave at the beginning, if your story is, the story in your mind is basically, I need security in my life. And I want a certain kind of lifestyle. Maybe you didn't have it growing up. And if that really is a story, even if you're a Christian, even if you know the gospel, okay, I know the gospel, Jesus died for me, sure. But really, every day, that's the story running in your head. And yet you look at your life and you're not there yet, you're struggling maybe financially, then that's the problem. Then your solution is to go to work and work very, very hard. And where is that coming from? That's coming from a worldview. Maybe your story is a little different. Maybe you have a certain vision of success in your life. Until you reach a certain goal, then you're not going to actually feel like your life has really done anything. You haven't really become the person that you know you should be. So that's what you're going after, but your life is not there yet. That's the problem. So now you're getting to work very, very hard. And why is that? Well, again, that's because of your worldview. In both of those cases, maybe the worldview is this materialistic, naturalistic worldview. Where deep down you feel like, you know what, maybe there is a God. I sort of believe in that. But really, this is all we have. This is all we have. My life right here, my job, what I make, what I've bought, what I own, this is what I have and I need to build that up. And so everything is directed towards that. And the moment it's not happening or things are getting taken away, oh my God, this is a massive problem. I work harder, I work harder, right? It's directing your life, it's driving your life. And so even though we are Christians who have the gospel, this other story, this other worldview is running our lives. It's very, very powerful. And so for people like that, God in his great mercy will confront us. He will with his narrative, with his worldview. And in that moment, things can get very troubling very fast. And especially when you don't have access to what it all means. Because God will begin to reveal his worldview. And you're like, what, what is going on? I don't understand. If you don't have access to understand what's going on, then things get very troubling very fast. And this is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. This is him. 
But he had his own story running in his head. He had his own worldview, his own narrative of who he is, what his kingdom is about, how great he is. We hear it in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. We're not there yet. A couple chapters ahead. But one day he stood on the balcony of his palace looking out over his kingdom. This is what he said. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Who talks like that? Nebuchadnezzar talks like that. But he's like, dude, who built this empire? I did. For who? For me. For the glory of my majesty. And so here's his narrative running in his head. That is his worldview. And then God in his mercy confronted him. It was a very different worldview. Very different. And so he had a dream. He saw the statue and the stone cleaving off of a mountainside, came flying at it, utterly crushed it, obliterated it. He had no idea what it meant, and it terrified him. It was very confusing, very troubling. And I remember many years ago when the church first began, a member of our church invited his coworker to come to our service. And so she came. It was great. It was great to have her come. And I believe she was a Jewish woman. So she was Jewish. She was a coworker of a member of our church. She came and sat through the entire service. And I cannot forget what she said to me after the service. I went up to her and I said, hey, thanks for visiting. You know, um, do you have any questions? And then she just straight up looked at me and said, you know, pastor, I was very uncomfortable. And I felt very afraid during the service today. And I'm thinking, whoa, okay. <laughs> I've never had this kind of conversation before. And in my mind, I just gave a pretty straightforward message from God's word on sin and God's grace. I mean, it's just a very typical message, right? But she said, you know, pastor, I felt very afraid today. And I'm not even sure why, but I felt fear. I felt fear. And she might have been going through some stuff at her workplace, and that's why her friend, the person at our church, brought her. But as she was sitting there, and as I'm just giving a typical message from the Bible on the gospel, right? Sin and God's grace and God's judgment and all that. She was confronted. That's what I believe. I mean, she told me. She felt very uncomfortable. It was very awkward for her. She never came back. And so in that moment, something was confronting her narrative. Something was confronting her worldview. She didn't like it. She was polite enough to sat through sit through the whole service, but she did not like it. She was afraid. And so you see this. God in his mercy will confront. He will come against that narrative that is running in our heads. And so this might happen as you come to church. It might happen as you are at work, and then suddenly things are falling apart around you. And then in that moment, a Christian comes to you and says, you know what, I've been reading the word, and maybe you might want to take a look at this verse. And it's something completely other than the narrative that's been running in your head. And I'll be honest, in those moments, you might not be encouraged. You might actually be troubled more than encouraged. You might be troubled. But God does it so that on the other side of that trouble, God will bring transformation. So this is the significance of God's story. It is a worldview directing and shaping our lives like an operating system. And it will come and confront our pre-existing worldviews. That other story running in our minds, it will confront it. And at those times, it will be troubling. But for others, if you're receptive, if if you know enough about God, it can be incredibly encouraging. So no doubt for Daniel, that was the case. But Daniel knew enough about God and who he is, that he's sovereign. He knew enough that when the gospel story was revealed to Daniel, because Daniel got that dream directly revealed to him. 
Because Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You need to find out what it is and then tell me the interpretation. So he did. He prayed and then God showed him. And so when he saw that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, I believe he dreamt the same dream. He went to bed one night after praying and then God showed him the exact same dream. And when he saw that, I believe for Daniel, it was incredibly encouraging. Because here's this young man living in exile in Babylon. He didn't know his future. He could be dead next year. I could be dead next month, right? He didn't know. And yet, what did God reveal to him? That I see you, that I am sovereign, and I'm sovereign over the very kingdom that you are captive in, even. And ultimately, this kingdom is going to go away, but my kingdom will come, and it will last forever. My kingdom that you know, Daniel, will reign forever. It's coming. So imagine, Daniel, this young teenager in exile having this dream. It would have been incredibly encouraging. His identity, his purpose, his interactions with the other Babylonians, his faith in God, right? Even his perseverance at work, all of this would have been affected by this worldview. So do you see how powerful these things are? I believe Daniel probably wrote this as an old man looking back and he remembered every detail. That's how powerful it was. So what's the story running in your head when you go to work? We need to really dig deeper. What is that story running in your head? What are you telling yourself when you go to work every day? Why do you say, I have to go to work? What's the story surrounding that? So there's great significance to these narratives, especially God's narrative. The second thing we see is the revelation of God's story, the revelation of God's story. So if you look at verses 31 through 35, Daniel said, you saw, O king, so Daniel is now finally revealing the dream to him. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and his appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, his chest and arms of silver, his middle and thighs of bronze, his legs of iron, his feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on his feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that's the dream. So finally, the dream is revealed. And then in verses 36 through 45, Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream. And it's amazing. This is one of the most mind-blowing prophecies in scripture. This was written hundreds and hundreds of years prior to the events. And this is talking about things even future to us. This is the story of human history as God sees it. And so, as it turned out, this dream was a prophetic revelation of God's sovereignty over the great nations on the earth. The greatest empires of the earth in that region, Babylon was near Israel, in the Middle East, in that region, and God is giving the history of that entire region of the greatest empires that are to come upon the earth in that region that will impact the entire world. So this is what the dream is talking about. It is a prophetic revelation of God's sovereignty over the great empires of the earth. And some of these nations were in the ancient past, but not all of them. I believe one of them is yet to be. It's in the future. And it will rise up in the same area as all the rest. But it will be a nation that I believe that will be on the earth at the time of Christ's return. So this is the dream. This is the interpretation. And God showed his sovereignty over all the nations of the earth, 
Okay, this is his narrative, right? This is the story he gave to Daniel and to Nebuchadnezzar. But God showed his sovereignty through the story in several different ways. We don't have time to go into it in depth. One day I actually do want to go into this dream, into this prophecy, really, really detailed. There is just so much to unpack. Maybe an entire sermon series on this one dream, on this one prophecy. But for now, I'm, I'm just going to highlight a few things. But God showed his sovereignty over all the nations through the specificity of the dream. It was very specific, right? Through the accuracy of the dream, the fulfillment of all these things were so accurate. And then finally, the victory that he talked about in this dream. The stone not cut by human hands coming and smashing these empires. So God was incredibly specific in this dream. So again, we can't go into all the details. It'll just take many, many sermons to cover it. But in the book of Daniel itself, we learn what these different metals in this statue represent. They are empires. They are great empires. So immediately in Daniel chapter 2, we know what the head of gold is. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, this is you. This is Babylon. The king represented the empire, so this is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, the head of gold. And then after the head of gold were chests and arms of silver, so now a lesser metal. But it came next. And we learn in Daniel chapter 7, chapter 8, is by name, we know this is the Medo-Persians. We know they came next, and we actually read about them coming and conquering Babylon in the book of Daniel. So they came next. And then you see the belly of bronze. And then that is also by name mentioned in the book of Daniel, Greece, and Daniel chapter 8, is mentioned by name. The Grecian Empire, the Hellenistic Empire, Alexander the Great. It doesn't mention Alexander by name, but it mentions that this king is going to just appear out of nowhere and sweep across the entire region, just conquer. So the Jewish people had a prophecy about Alexander the Great hundreds of years before he was born. You know, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard that when Alexander finally reached Israel and conquered that area, these rabbis came out to meet him and said, Alexander, we're glad to finally meet you. We've known about you in our book. And they showed him the prophecies about him in the book of Daniel. So I heard that. It might have been true. But that's amazing. That's amazing if that's true. But the Jewish people knew about this king from Greece that was going to come hundreds of years prior. And this was the, the belly of bronze. And when you look at each and every one of those empires, they all span pretty much the same geographic region. Near Israel, I wish I had some maps, I don't have any maps, but near Israel, but expanding outward from that area across broad, broad stretches of that entire region. But these empires were huge. They were huge. And so Daniel's dream is very specific in describing each and every one of these empires. And it's also very specific in when these things were going to happen. So again, I can't go into this too much in detail, but I want you guys to understand this because this is our history. This is talking about what's going to happen to all of us on this planet. But some people see all of these things having happened, the stone flying and crushing the statue when Jesus first came. So these people are called preterists. That's a word you should remember, preterists. Preterists, and these are brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I have respect for them. Some of the best Bible teachers are preterists. I don't agree with them. I think they're wrong, but I respect them. And I have humility when I interact with them. But preterists believe that the vast majority of prophecies in the Bible are all done. They're all done. The only thing left is Jesus' second coming and maybe a few things surrounding that. But all of it's done. So that's what they say. 
So this dream about the statue is all done. It already happened. The rock already flew. It already smashed the statue. It's all gone. That happened at Jesus' first coming. I think there are massive, massive problems to that interpretation. Again, I can't go into all of it, but one of them, one of the reasons is Daniel specifically says in verse 28, this is about the latter days. You need to understand this, brothers and sisters. You need to understand the word of God. Again, God has revealed this graciously to us because this is what's going to happen to us. Human history. People, they think this is already done, and then, and yet God said, no, this is about the latter days. And yet preterists, they say, no, the latter days, the last days is talking about the last days of the Jewish age, the Jewish age. So when Jesus first came, he brought the Jewish age to an end. I think that's a very tough interpretation. Yeah, I don't accept that. Because almost every single time the Bible talks about the latter days, it's talking about the end times, the end of this age, before the kingdom of God, eternal kingdom comes. It's talking about this age, not the Jewish age, this age. So the other view would be not preterist, but futurist view, which means, no, this is not talking about something that's already all done, Jesus' first coming. This is talking about when Jesus comes again, his second coming. But do you see the level of specificity that is in this, this vision? I mean, you can really go into it in detail, and, and yet things begin to really line up. There's even specificity about the fourth kingdom, which is the only one not mentioned by name. So we know Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, all mentioned in the book of Daniel. We don't know the fourth kingdom. That one we don't know. Most Bible scholars throughout church history have said, this is Rome. Why? Because what came after Greece? Rome came. It's obvious. It's Rome. And it was terrifying. It was like this big beast. It chomped on things like iron, claws of iron, crushing all these other empires. And they go, it's Rome. It's very clear. So most Bibles, in your Bible, it might even say Rome, right? The heading might say, the fourth beast is Rome. Or the, or the fourth part of the statue is Rome. Well, there's a different view on that as well, and we're not going to get into it. But there's a lot of good reason to reject that, I believe. Again, if you have that view, I respect it. But I think there's a lot of textual and also historical reasons why we can reject that and why a better interpretation is the Islamic caliphate, the Islamic caliphate. Because if you were to look at a map of that region, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece all cover the same area. They came one after another, and they occupied the same space. Rome never really did. Rome was a Western empire. Three-quarters of that region where Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece were, Rome didn't occupy that. Rome never occupied that. Rome was mostly in Europe. Parts of North Africa, a little bit of Middle East, you know, Israel, but it was mostly a Western European empire. So it doesn't really fit. So, so there, there are reasons why it doesn't quite fit. And yet, when you look at the Islamic Caliphate, which came actually after the Roman Empire, it occupied that entire region. So, so what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to explain to you is the specificity of this vision. You need to understand how specific it is. And how could it be that specific? God is sovereign. See, that's the point I'm trying to illustrate. God is sovereign over the nations. But it's not only that. It's the accuracy of God. It's the accuracy of God. So God, as he began to reveal this dream through Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar, the accuracy of it is amazing. But yes, he was the head of gold, and after him, the Medo-Persians did come, and indeed, that's exactly what history says. It's not only in the Bible, but even secular historians, they all say, yeah, the Medo-Persians came, and that's exactly what happened. And then later in Daniel chapter 7, because Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7, they're parallel chapters. 
God is constantly repeating himself. He wants us to get this. So if you've heard this before, then I would encourage you to listen to it again. God wants to repeat things. So in chapter 7, this is a parallel vision to the statue. The statue has four different medals representing four empires. Chapter 7 has four different beasts, terrifying beasts, and they represent the same empires, the exact same. Bible scholars are almost unanimously agreeing on that. Yeah, chapter 7 is just repeating chapter 2. Four medals, same as the four beasts in chapter 7. And when you dive into chapter 7, you get more information on these nations, and it's just accurate. It's just incredibly accurate. In fact, it's so accurate, liberal scholars say, there's no way Daniel wrote this in 600 BC. There's no way. These nations weren't even around yet. And he knew to that accuracy, there's no way. This was written by some other person under the pseudonym of Daniel after these nations were there, afterwards. Why? Because they don't believe in a God. They don't believe in supernatural prophecy. They don't believe in that. So there's no way somebody could be that accurate. And yet incredibly accurate. Again, we can't get into it. I could spend weeks and weeks on this, right? But how is that possible? How could God be that accurate about these nations and what was going to happen and who was going to do what? It's because he's sovereign. Again, that's the point I'm making. He's sovereign over the nations. And then we finally see his sovereignty over the victory, the victory that God would bring. But as these nations will appear one after another upon the earth, okay, they're going to all have their own worldviews. Okay, they're going to have all, you know, their own things that they're going to be all about. And one after another, and as these empires arise, ultimately God said, I'm going to bring my kingdom, a stone not cut by human hands. It will come and smash all of these empires. And again, I believe this is talking about the last days. Right before Jesus comes back again, this will happen. There will be a fourth great empire that will rise in that same region, covering that same area. It is not Rome, but it's going to be something else. Same area is going to rise up, and then God's kingdom, with Jesus' the second coming, will come and crush it. Will crush it. And it's very specific. But in a single act, all, all the nations will be obliterated together at the same time. So that will happen at the very end. So what is that? That's a great victory with specificity, how it's going to happen. So this is the history that God is unfolding. Okay, this is God's story. Okay, this is his gospel story. And so why is this a gospel story? It's a gospel story because ultimately what man has tried to accomplish on their own, only God did okay, by his grace. Okay, all the things that we are going to be suffering through, all the things that are oppressing us, these great empires of the world controlling us and leading us further and further from God, how is God going to deliver? Through his hand, through his kingdom. So this is what God revealed. But this is the revelation of his story. And so as we begin to understand this more and more, we need to begin to align our lives with this. We need to begin to come in line with this great vision. And so now we finally come to the application of God's story. But this is a dream about the ages. It's about the great empires of the earth, but it's also a dream about you and me, ultimately. It's not just about things way out there, but it's about you and me. Because Nebuchadnezzar was terrified by this dream, not because it predicted the fall of human history. He didn't know that. He had no idea what this was about. So this isn't the same kind of terror that Charlton Heston felt in the movie Planet of the Apes. Have you guys seen that movie where he suddenly came across... <laughs> she saw it. But she suddenly, 
he suddenly came across the Statue of Liberty buried in sand, and then he realized, oh my gosh, I'm in New York, I'm in my own country, but I'm in the future, and civilization is... It's not that kind of terror, right? The end of human civilization is different. But Nebuchadnezzar was terrified by this dream, and he was prepared to kill hundreds of his best counselors and wise men. Why? Because somehow he saw himself in it. Again, maybe he saw his face reflected on the head of gold, but he saw his own face. He saw himself in it. And even if he didn't, Daniel made it very clear to Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold, verse 38. (laughs) So after that, he did see himself. So he was in this. And so this was true symbolically, but also literally, because we know that Nebuchadnezzar was wanting to make an imposing statue of himself. And we're going to see that next week in chapter 3. But later, after he had this dream, it was interpreted, he literally made the statue to represent his kingdom. And so he was so far off, right? So whether he saw himself in it symbolically or literally, he saw himself in it. And so this is more than about this out there empire and this unfolding history that's going to happen out there. But this is really about you and me. So yes, there is a cosmic interpretation to this dream, but there's also a very personal one. And so as we're sitting here, all of us today... We have both stories of living life on the statue, but living life also on the rock in the kingdom of God. But we are also represented in this dream, in this statue. And so then how do we take this narrative, right? The narrative of the gospel, the narrative of this statue, what God is doing throughout history, and how do we apply it to our lives? Well, it's very simple. But first, ask yourself, which kingdom am I investing in? Which kingdom am I investing in? When you look at Nebuchadnezzar's dream, ask yourself, am I investing in this kingdom over here? Get the statue that's glittering, but with each passing time, it's diminishing in its glory. See, initially, it's very impressive. It's represented by glittering gold, and then silver and precious metals, but over time, it begins to fade, right? Is that the kingdom I'm investing in? Is it a kingdom that is man-made? Everything that the world is going after, all the companies, all the things that we're building, everything that's going on here, is is that what I'm investing in? When you look at this kingdom, it's decreasing in value, but is that what I'm investing in? Okay, five years ago, my company was like this, but, but now it's growing a little bit, but I see more and more immorality here. Yes, the stocks have gone up and the shares are going up, but, but now there's more immorality. Is that what I'm investing in? Am I investing in something that is weak in its foundation? So when you look at that statue, it's very weak in its foundation. Because the moment this stone hit it, it completely toppled over and obliterated. Am I investing in something that's ultimately being destroyed? And so that's a question. That's a real question from this dream, from this narrative. God is showing us this is the kingdom of men. I'm showing you very clearly what it is. It might look very impressive. It's very imposing, maybe even terrifying. And yet over time, it's going to diminish in value. And it's on a very weak foundation. And ultimately, it will be destroyed. So what are you investing in? You know, I've shared this before, but I remember, I'm an older person, but I remember the fall of Enron. Maybe you can replace that with other companies that are more recent. But there are a lot of companies that go under. But people who don't understand the narrative of God, it would be exactly like all these people. And I remember before Enron fell, it was one of the top companies in this nation. A lot of books were being written by it. I remember even reading a Christian leadership book, and they use Enron as a great example, right, of integrity and and all this. And if if you guys don't know what happened, Enron was a company that completely went bankrupt and had to shut down. 
And a lot of the, the upper management went to prison because it was a huge scam. Okay, they were just scamming people. Well, I remember a lot of people were investing huge amounts of money to buy up their stock. I remember that. And so that would be a picture of somebody not being aware of the true narrative of this world and investing all of their time, all their resources in this. So that would be the first way to make this immediately applicable to us. What are you investing in? In contrast, there's another kingdom in this dream, but the rock not cut by human hands. Are you investing in that kingdom? And this kingdom, in contrast, is not very impressive at all. So you might not even notice it. It's kind of like when you're driving through Joshua Tree, you see a lot of big rocks. They're just zooming by, right? It's just rocks. You don't even pause to stop to look at a rock. But this is the kingdom of God. It is just a rock, a large rock, but just a rock. But it's from God himself. It has divine origin. Why? Because it was not cut by human hands. So this is not being built by human hands. So are you investing in that? And then finally, are you investing in something that is immovable? Because this rock in the dream, after crushing that statue, became a mountain and it filled the whole earth. So are you investing in that? And by the way, whether you're a preterist or a futurist, you can get on board with this kingdom that's growing and filling the whole earth. Preterists say the rock came and smashed the statue at Jesus' first coming, and now the gospel is going throughout the earth. That's a picture of the stone becoming a mountain, filling the earth. Yeah, we're preaching the gospel. Sure, if that's your belief, then, then do it. For the futurists, Christ came, and the gospel is spreading throughout the earth, but eventually what we're doing right now, preaching the gospel and getting people to come to church and hear the gospel, what that is doing is that will usher in the kingdom of God. That will usher in the rock to come and smash the statue. So does that make sense? So either way, whether you think it's already happened, whether it's in the future, you can get on board with this rock that is growing and that will fill the entire earth. So is that what you're investing in? So what are you investing in? Okay, that, that's a wise question to ask. And here's a practical way to know which kingdom you're investing in, is how do you pray? Okay, as you go to work, as you're engaging with the things at work, how are you praying? But do you only and always pray, forgive me my debts, give me my daily bread? Or do you also pray what Jesus told us? Your kingdom come okay, on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, are you praying that prayer as well? So do you pray for God's kingdom to come into your workplace? Do you pray for the people there to know Christ? Do you pray for the people in your neighborhood to know Christ? Do you pray for Muslims, the people of other faiths and religions to come to know the Lord? Okay, that's how you'll know which kingdom you're investing in. So how do you pray? So that's the first question, and then we're gonna close with this, but what are you trusting in? Okay, what are you trusting in? Okay, we should ask that question. But do I trust God, the one who is writing this history, the one who is guiding my life towards this end, am I trusting in this God? Or again, am I trusting in this statue and all the things that's drawing me to that? And I remember this one guy, uh, he was a friend of mine, but he actually asked me to talk to his brother and he said, you know what, my brother is actually going through a lot of hard things. And his brother was very talented. He worked for a big blue chip company. He was in finance. And when I finally got around to calling the brother and talking with him, I mean, he was really in bad shape. But he told me, you know what, um, I reached this level of success. I'm in a high level of management in my company. But in the last few years, I mean, I have been stressed. I've been having major health issues. I'm not able to sleep right now. And the reason why is because he thought he was going to lose his job. 
and there were a lot of things going on in his workplace, a lot of rearrangements were happening, and he was massively, massively stressed. And so I remember just kind of talking with him. I didn't know what to say. I just prayed with him, and then we hung up. And I touched base a little bit later with my friend going, oh, how's your brother doing? And, and he seemed okay, but he was massively struggling. And he was sort of a Christian. He didn't really go to church regularly. He was sort of a Christian. But, but to me, that, that would be a key example of a person who needed to ask this question, where, where is my trust, right? Where, what am I trusting in? Again, do you know the story that God is writing? Right? Do you know the worldview that he has presented to us? And there are two different options. There are two different kingdoms. So what are you trusting in? So this is the same God writing the story. This is the same God who told Daniel thousands of years ago, with specificity, with detail, what would happen in history, right up to the present moment and beyond. Okay, God knows everything. And so is that the God that you're trusting in? See, these are very straightforward questions. Well, I close with this. But Daniel wrote these things from God himself so that we would be encouraged and so that we can trust him. Amen? So that we can begin to invest in the correct kingdom. It is a story of two kingdoms, and God is writing these stories. But that we would invest in his kingdom. You know, I really like what the ESV Study Bible says on this chapter. I don't really quote from study notes. This is maybe my first time ever. But these study notes were very encouraging. It was almost devotional. But the ESV study Bible on Daniel 2 said, the high degree of specificity in Daniel's prophecies shows how carefully God has planned events and governs them for his perfect ends. Not just for the nations, but for your life. God has planned events and governs them with specificity for his perfect ends. Therefore, it continues, therefore the faithful can recognize that none of their troubles take God by surprise. And none will derail his purpose of vindicating those who steadfastly love him. This was quite relevant to the people of God in Daniel's day who were on the verge of horrendous devastations and persecutions. They must be assured that the story will continue to its appointed fulfillment so that they do not lose heart. Amen? So that's the encouragement. Ultimately, yes, this is about the grand sweep of history. This is about the future. This is when Christ comes back. It's about the end times. But right now, today, this is about God's sovereign hand over your life and what he is doing in your heart so that you may be encouraged. Amen? So let's just come before the Lord. But I realize today's message is a little bit hard to wrap our arms around. It's a little bit harder than, than the typical message on Sunday morning. Talking about these wild prophecies and the grand sweep of history. And what, what, is God, what, what God is doing around the nations. And yet it directly does affect the way we live our lives. But even as a pastor of this church, I mean, this is my work, right? This is my calling. But even as the pastor of this church, things get hard sometimes. Things get very discouraging. I get confused certain times with other things happening in my life. And during those times, there are only a very few things that encourage me and keep me going. One is my family, my wife, my family. But the other thing is God's calling upon my life. God's calling. 
and what he has promised he will do from passages like Daniel 2. It genuinely changes the way I see my work here and my calling here. It really does. To see God's sovereign hand and the level of specificity and and every detail that he knows about my life and how he's moving all of it towards his hand. It's his end, his purpose. It really makes a difference. It really encourages me. So I just want to encourage you as well. Let's come before the Lord. As we do every Sunday, we're going to spend a moment before God. But let's just come before him right now. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We want to be like Nebuchadnezzar and humble ourselves before your revelation. When Daniel revealed the dream to him and and interpreted it, he fell on his face. He fell on his face. Lord God, my prayer is that we would even just do a fraction of that. We've been handed pearls and we don't even know what they are. We don't see them as pearls. We play with them and toss them around like plastic beads, but they're pearls, infinitely precious. Most of us haven't even scratched the surface of the deeper meanings of these things. So Lord God, please help us, Father. And let it bear directly down on our work and how we go about our work every day. Thank you, Lord. Let's just spend a moment before God. Let's ask God to give us that worldview. of those other stories that are more real and more powerful to you driving your life driving you at work then let's repent of those things really the only story that should be driving us is God's story amen this is, this is the only story that should be driving us when we go to work every day this should be the only story that really motivates us and dictates the way we do our work what God is doing on planet earth right now through his son Jesus Christ and through the proclamation of the gospel and the outpouring of his spirit God's sovereign hand over my life our lives that should be the story that is running in your mind as you go to work so let's just pray for that thank you Lord